Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us as we study. I'm asking that you would teach us how to arrive at true conclusions regarding your Holy Bible. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Ellen White wrote some interesting things related to how to know what's true. She wrote that if you come up with a new interpretation of Scripture, that you should, um, yeah, I think I can read it to you here. How many people are there in this room that were here in the first session, so you have the longer handout? It's like about seven of you. All right. I'm reading from that, from that longer handout. It doesn't have page numbers, so I don't know if I can help you find what I'm reading. And I have to find it first. If I don't find it, I can just tell you what it says and I'll feel, that's it. So what Ellen White wrote is that when you come up with a new idea, you need to bounce it off brethren of experience. Have you read this yourself before? Bounce it off brethren of experience. And I'm going to tell you how this goes wrong and how it leads to people thinking that they must be about right. When you find out, or let's say to make you feel better, let's say it's the doctor in your local church. Doctors are the origin of more successful heresies than plumbers. It's, it's not because that they are more heretical than plumbers, but it's because people tend to believe them more than they believe plumbers. Does that make any sense to what I'm saying? And so, so the local doctor in your local church discovers, yeah, a doctor wrote to me about this from England recently, discovers that the little horn of Daniel uh, 8 is certainly not Rome. <laughs> so, so the doctor has that, but now he's going to present this to the brethren of experience to see what they think. And so he presents it to all the elders in his local church and his local pastor. Do you know there's a fair chance that his local pastor hasn't studied about the little horn in over seven years, right? And, and, I, and I don't mean to fault any local pastor that way. The fact is that local pastors have a lot of things they need to study, and they might not get to reviewing everything like so often, right? And the local elders in that church, it may be that none of them have studied the book of Daniel since they were in college. And now when the doctor presents his idea and they see his evidence, it makes good sense to them. And they say, I don't see any problem with it. Well, what he asks is, do you see a problem with it? And they know if they say yes, don't they have to explain what the problem is? If they're not ready to explain what the problem is, are they going to tell him they see a problem? What I'm trying to illustrate for you is that if you ever come up with a new idea you can't bounce it off your buddies and then think that you've bounced it off brethren of experience. Does that make you follow what I'm saying? Do you have a question? You found it? Yeah. Yes, please. There are a thousand temptations in disguise prepared for those who have the light of truth. And the only safety for any of us is in receiving no new doctrine, no new interpretation of the scriptures without first submitting it to brethren of experience. Lay it before them in a humble, teachable spirit with earnest prayer, and if they see no light in it, yield to their judgment. For in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Testimonies 5. Yeah, so in the fifth line of Testimonies, Ellen White said, if the brethren of experience see no light in your new idea, even though it seems like it's light to you, drop it. Isn't that hard, at least for Americans, to bite into? Doesn't that sound like the very opposite of the principles that built the Reformation? But it's not. God never intended that we would be individual atoms. 
He never intended that you would be the mouth, the brain, the eye, the nose, the whole thing. He intended that the church would arrive at truth as a body. Have you remember we read that in Ephesians 4 last period? So it wasn't just prophets that had been given to the church. What else was it? Evangelists and pastor teachers and, in fact, apostles. You have a whole system there of a church working together to arrive at the truth. I found my Bible. So if you have your one-page handout, the one that everyone has now, look down at number six. You see, get human help. That is, that is relevant. Um, we started out by saying that we should not be dependent on humans for, for our truth. Yeah, you can take lots of, oh, take these single-paged ones, because I want to have one copy of the whole thing. Okay, good. You may, please, go ahead. When you say faith-based commentaries, you mean people that commented that were Christians? Okay, so Ezekiel's asking, what does the handout mean when it says faith-based commentaries? I mean that there are many Bible commentaries that do not take God at his word. The last thing you need is to read comments by someone who isn't sure that this or that verse is really inspired. Or someone who's not sure if really the book of Daniel was written when it claims to be. Well, I guess it doesn't have any claims in it, but it was claimed to be written by the man who lived at that time, Daniel. Nards, if you have textbooks... I'm going to be so plain here. I'm talking to college students mostly. If your teacher assigns you to read a textbook by someone who doesn't believe in the authority and accuracy of Scripture, I don't think that you ought to do your assignments. You shouldn't read that book. But there are some commentaries. I have on my computer online Bible. It's free, right? Onlinebible.net. You can get this for free. And it has some commentaries that our pioneers often refer to. Have any of you read in our pioneer writings where they refer to Adam Clark? If you'll read like James White and Uriah Smith and Haskell, if they're going to quote a commentary, the most common one for them to quote is Adam Clark. Well, why do they quote Adam Clark? He wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. But he was a Bible student who believed whatever the Bible said. So his commentary was not a commentary of critiquing whether or not the verse was legitimate, but a commentary of comparing other passages and bringing information from his wealth of scriptural experience. So it ended up being really just a very helpful thing. Uh, James Fawcett Brown is another one of these commentaries. Um, anyway, the ones you find on onlinebible.net are only those kind as a general thing. I think I lost almost everyone answering your question, but at least you understood my answer. And um, it's okay. So... I understand what you're asking. So let me answer your question. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary was written by quite a number of men. One of the leading men in writing it was Raymond Cottrell. He was in charge of the section on Daniel. The only peace he's going to have between now and the judgment is the part he gets while he's resting. He's dead now. Raymond Cottrell very thoroughly abandoned the Adventist faith. He's written an article that is commonly available online called The Investigative Judgment, Asset or Liability. Have you ever seen that article or a reference to it there? Um, so he writes that he came to his doubts about our doctrines while writing the commentary series. That's his own testimony. So I wouldn't say that when you open up the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary that you're getting pure fodder. 
at least the testimony of one of its authors was that that's when he was losing his confidence in the faith while he was writing it. On the other hand, it's not like that they're worse than average for commentaries. They're better than average. I mean, compared to what you find. So have any of you looked in that line what I say about the commentaries? What I say about commentaries there is treat them like friends rather than like teachers. When, when I am having a hard time, like, does anyone remember what my hard chapter is for me, the worst one for me in the Bible? That's it, Zechariah 14. Would you like to just look at it to see why it's hard? I think. Why don't you turn your Bible Zechariah 14 for a minute? I just want you to see. I'll make my point to prove that everyone has their difficulties in Scripture. My second most difficult passages were Ezekiel 37 and 38, but I finally wrote, a, wrote an article about them, and I handed it out to a bunch of people here. Um, Zechariah 14, the verse that we typically quote from this passage is verse 4. You'll hear this in evangelistic series. And his feet shall stand in, the, in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. If you only read that verse, it just sort of matches with what you read in the Great Controversy about when the New Jerusalem comes down and the mountain cleaves, it can't bear Jesus up, you're reading about that, and there's a great plain and the city lands on it. Would you like to look? Yes, sir. Yes, they, they die just after this. That's right. So the city comes down, and then that's when they surround and die. So thank you for reminding me that you're in here and for saying that. So if you will look up at verse 2 and verse 3, I think you'll see why I don't think we ought to quote this in our series. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be what? Taken. Taken. <laughs> and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Do you see why? I think we shouldn't use this in our series. <laughs> Do you think? But I have some stabs at it anyway. Um, if I come up with an interpretation of Zechariah 14, before I begin broadcasting it, I should bounce it off brethren of experience. Because God's intended method is that we learn as a body. I don't believe whatever the brethren say. I don't treat them as if they are an alternative to my conscience or reason. But if, as a body, they can't see any light in what I'm teaching, I conclude that my own judgment is weak and poor. Yeah, that's true. Thank you for asking the question. So uh, this is what I was trying to communicate, and I, I really failed at this. I don't think that you can bounce your ideas off your local brethren. I don't think that our church is healthy enough that we can expect our local church brethren to be studious, careful, consecrated, knowledgeable, experienced people sufficiently to help us with these kind of problems. And I think that it's because people have made that mistake that so many errors have, have made rapid progress. You want to find brethren that are... Yeah, the kind you'd meet at GYC. Um, and you want, and you'll, you, do you bounce it off one? No, you need to bounce it off several. They need to bounce it off each other. In other words, what God is working at here is that we will not only be separated from human dependence, we'll also be separated from self-dependence. 
that by working together as a body, we'll learn to be depending upon God for our source of truth. You asked such good questions. Did you hear what she asked? She said, if you're going to bounce your ideas off a brother... So let me make this more practical before I answer the question. Not many of you here are ever going to have one of these strange ideas that you need to bounce off anybody. But a lot of you here are going to have questions that you need to bounce off the very same classes of people. You're going to be approached by teachings that need to be bounced I, I'm almost ready to say something so politically incorrect that I'll regret it for years. Just a minute. No, why should I do something like that? I refuse. Um, let me give you an example of a teaching that I've heard recently. I just discovered lots of colored markers. This is beautiful. I received quite a long study recently that said that in 1989, this was the beginning of the time of the end for Seventh-day Adventist. That in 9-11-2001, that this was the beginning of the judgment of the living. <clears throat> and that in this same period, 9-11-2001, this was the beginning of the fulfillment of Revelation 18, and, and because of what's in this chapter, that would mean the loud cry, and the loud cry is loud because of the power of the, the latter rain. Suddenly, 9-11 becomes a very apocalyptic experience. Has anyone seen this kind of reasoning recently in the last six months or so? So I see two, three hands. Four, maybe. Five. It's going up. Um, okay. But I'm not promoting the view. That's not how it's happening, right? So this is it. This idea largely... and. If the man who promotes this idea was standing here, I think he would accuse me of, of misrepresenting and oversimplifying. So I'm going to do my very best to represent him correctly. But I can't. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? You can never expect someone to represent their, the people they oppose correctly. If you really want to understand Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll never learn about them by asking ex-Jehovah's Witnesses to tell you about that church. Does that, does that make sense to what I'm saying? You can't learn about Mormons by asking ex-Mormons. And what do you think you'd think of Adventists if you studied them by talking to ex-Seventh-day Adventists? Do you think you'd get a pretty accurate picture that way? So what I'm telling you is I can't represent the other side. I'm just going to represent my side. And if you want the other side, you'll have to go ask someone that's on the other side. Does that sound fair enough to you what I'm saying? Ellen White wrote that she saw New York buildings going up, story after story. She saw that it wasn't for the glory of God, it was for the honor of the builders. She saw that the Lord would arise to shake terribly the earth, that the buildings would come down. And then, I'm almost quoting the statement, but it's a paraphrase, and then would be fulfilled Revelation 18, and she quotes the first three verses there. It says, read the whole chapter. So, oh, and did I mention that was New York that she saw? That was, yeah. yeah. So in 9-11, did buildings come down? Yes. Do you think they might have been built for the glory of the people who built them? Yes. And, um, and it's on the basis of that statement. Yeah, it's, it's this. Let me say something before I take your question. But if, if we had done a study on this phrase, the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth, we would have found quite a bit about it. We would have found that Ellen White distinctly places the timing of when the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth. It's in connection with the last scenes of the Sunday Law movement. 
that Isaiah talks about this. It's in connection with the final scenes of this earth's history. If 9-11 is connected, it's connected in the same sense that an illustration is connected to the real thing. It's a warning of what is coming. It wasn't it. It didn't shake terribly the earth. Something worse is coming. But men who heard this fell for one of the simplest false hermeneutics that I know. It's the hermeneutic that if it's plausible, it's true. Do you understand what I just communicated? The idea that if it seems like it could be so, that it might be right. And, and that hermeneutic is contrary to this hermeneutic. Beware of false prophets. Beware, take heed how you hear lest any man deceive you. Do you see when Jesus said, take heed how you hear, that he was saying you can't just believe something because it's plausible? Mm-hmm. So, so obviously I don't buy into these ideas. And yet these ideas fit into the category I mentioned in an earlier lecture of having lots of spirit of prophecy statements, lots of Bible information, and when you, if you study it by reading only what's presented to you, you would likely conclude that they were so. In that quote, yeah, I don't, I don't think that quote is referring to it at all. There might, it might be that it's what's referred to in the ninth volume of the testimonies, or there's an allusion to it there. It might be. I think when everyone said it was 9T11, they were stretching a bit. It started on page 10, you know. Um, there would be. So you'd agree that it's a sign of the times. I mean, that, that the events that are taking place in Earth's history should Even be. the San Francisco disaster on White's Day was one of those. Yeah, any time that a big city that's wicked receives a particular disaster, that ought to be to us little hints that it's time to get out. Okay, I'm ready to take questions. There will never be time to answer them. Does anyone have any questions? Yes, sir. So let me respond to this just a little bit. So we, we addressed this as you were coming in in another session. We looked at the day that the Father said to the Son, This day have I begotten thee. And that was Acts 13.33. So that was at the resurrection. But do you know Jesus did not make a bone about his divinity very often at all when he was living with the Jews? He addressed almost everything but that, and only on rare occasions under special circumstances did that issue even come up. I don't think in studying with Jehovah's Witnesses we would do well to start on this topic or to let that become a focal point. But in answer to the thing, so those that were here, Proverbs 8 says about wisdom, and many understand that to be Jesus personified as wisdom or wisdom personified representing Jesus would be the better way to say that. I guess it would be the opposite of personified, wouldn't it be? Because Ellen White refers to She does. It is Christ, but she also said another, and the Bible commentary also says to the personification of wisdom. So I, so I would just ignore the Bible commentary and go with the inspired commentary and say that what it says about Jesus is that it's him there. Well, what where in the passage do we get the idea that he came into existence in the past? It's only from this word brought forth. And that word brought forth can mean to wait. In fact, its first usage in Scripture is that way, Genesis 8.10, it is to wait. And does that match well with what other Scriptures teach about Jesus? From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Yeah, Micah 5.2, from everlasting. Yeah, go ahead. So, we didn't really get to clear up too, too much my, my issue, which 
is basically if we're using the word of God to measure our very prophet, right, as well as our church and our leaders in the church, how can we take the position then um, we are right and therefore if um, someone comes with something that seems very plausible, right, it makes complete sense from the word of God, how can we just stand on the premise that we are right and therefore that must be wrong and we'll just wait until we see the light? That, that is what Tell me your name, sister, so I can respond. Michelle. Michelle. So, Michelle, I don't take that premise at all. I've spent thousands of hours studying some of these ideas that come. But if 20 of you give me a new idea after this meeting, I don't have to spend the rest of my life studying those 20 ideas. There are some of them that I can cut off already because it's apparent that they are ones that would not profit, they would not help, they're not on that target. Um, I don't know if I can answer this very well, except I can say that you do need to go to God and get an answer, because you have to obey Hebrews 13.9. And there's no way to obey Hebrews 13.9 unless you find some way to identify diverse and strange doctrines. Yes, this is my mother, so I must take this question. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Uh, I think we need to remember that uh, there are some things about God that we will never understand. Even if we study throughout eternity, we are told there are things about God that we will not understand. So uh, we're told all that we need to know in the Bible, but we don't need to be searching beyond that. Uh, now, speculation has no virtue in Bible study. Yeah, and that is certainly true. To guesswork about any topic, especially about divinity, is not a good thing. But just to be clear, I was referencing those, those doctrines that really shape and form our very beliefs. That's been my experience. My father, who was in the church, and mm -hmm. to probably give all of us a Bible study, is no longer, he's an atheist at this point. Mm -hmm. right? And then he comes to me with a whole bunch of um, the great white lie and all of these books that, by the grace of God, I haven't picked up, um, you know, since he's given them to me. Mm -hmm. But how do you challenge those things that, you know, that would shake is Ellen White a prophet? Is, um, do we really... Okay, Michelle, so thank you for bringing up an example. So let, let's deal with this. So here you have the book, The White Lie which is an accusation, of course, against Ellen White as a plagiarist. Before I read the book, I do want to study fundamental Adventism, the three of those messages, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 12. If I understand my homework, these fundamental ideas, the three of those messages, that puts me in good stead not to fall for the errors that are coming my way. Now, I have a surprise. By the way, I do have an article on the white lie on that Bible Doc website. You might be interested in it. I read it, and I expected worse stuff than what I found. I don't mean it was good stuff. I mean it was weak stuff. Um, that's, that's, that's what I mean. Um, I remember, for example, one of the first examples given was about Milton. You know, Milton wrote this book, Paradise Lost, right? And he was dead and rotted before Ellen White was writing anything that she wrote. And so uh, the author of The White Lie, Walter Ray, he went and showed that much of what Ellen White wrote about the great controversy came from not the Bible, but from this uninspired source, Paradise Lost. And as soon as you have a prophet who draws her information from an uninspired source, that really becomes perplexing. But as I went through these evidences, I saw that Milton was just a very thoughtful man. <laughs> I mean, Milton was not writing gospel fiction. He was thinking through what could we know based on what is revealed in the Bible by deduction. And you know, he got a lot of his points right. For example, Milton reasoned that 
if angels, some had fallen, some hadn't fallen, can we get that from Revelation 12? That surely there would be some discussion between them while that's going on about whether or not it would be a good idea to follow God. Was that rational? It was rational. Did it turn out to be right? Yes. It did. And now to say that because Ellen White was shown the thing, that Milton reasoned that she was dependent on Milton when she quotes neither his words nor his sentence structure nor his paragraph order, the only thing in common is an idea, is extremely weak. Then Walter Ray went and published, I was just fascinated by this, he published a list you know, some people said that Ellen White's testimonies, these are not plagiarized. You might say that she copied in Desire of Ages, you might say she copied in The Great Controversy, but not the testimonies. Well, that got under Ray's skin. And he published a, a list of the testimonies with each section, for many sections, where Ellen White had her source. Well, I just happened to have one of the books with me. It was Jan Andrews' History of the Sabbath that he said that she quoted in the testimony. So I looked it up. There was hardly a correlation. They both didn't mention the Sabbath. <laughs> and that was about it. Not the verses, not the reasoning, not the main idea, not the thought. It was fiction. So do you remember what the Bible said about this? Jesus said, about prophets in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when men speak all manner of evil against you. What's the next word? Falsely, Falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets, which were before you. Let's turn that into a question. If people are going to persecute prophets, how do they do it? And how much false things? All manner of evil, right? All manner of evil against them. And what's the adverb? Falsely. That's it. So if things haven't changed since the sword on the mount, if Elnott was a true prophet, I would expect that all manner of evil would be spoken against her. Then do you see, as a, nat as a natural consequence of this idea, that if I judged Ellen White, Ellen White on the basis of all manner of things spoken about her, I would most certainly conclude that she was a false prophet. Did that make sense to you what I just said? I don't actually remember what you asked, but I hope I answered the question. <laughs> but let me get to one right here. I saw a man. Go ahead. Yeah, I just had a question um, about the book of Job and mm -hmm. his three friends. Um, the Spirit of Prophecy quotes the friends often, for example, um, who, by, um, by searching, can find out God, was spoken by one of the friends. I wouldn't say often, but occasionally. Okay. Let, well, go ahead. Yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah, yeah, very occasionally. Um, and, and the Lord said, Against um, in, at the end of Job, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken to me that thing that is right as my servant Job had. So, um, for me, it makes me kind of hesitant to quote from Job from one of the friends of Job, because from there, how do you decide? You know. Yeah. So, so you're you're raising up two questions really. One is why did Ellen White do that, and the other, how do we relate to the other parts of Job? Exactly. If you it was really nice back when you were like four years old that people had in their bookshelves these Ellen White indexes, those three volumes. And near the end of one of them was the scripture index. In a way, it's become meaningless now because the computers allow us to do all that so much faster. But there was an advantage to the indexes. You could see some things by, at a glance that you can't see now. And one is that Ellen White did not quote those friends very much at all. It was just sparse. But did God say that everything the friends said was false? In fact, most of what the friends say is common sense. Most of it is right. As a big picture, it was false. And so, yeah, I do the same thing. When I hear someone quote from the book of Job, the first thing I do is look at verse 1 of the chapter to see who's speaking. And I uh, and so why don't you be careful of that in your Bible study? It's a very good point. Um, there's a lot of the book of Job that's designed to illustrate reasoning rather than to, rather than to show what is the gospel truth. Um, Some of what they said was right, right? Yeah, but, but you don't want to use it as an authority. Mm -hmm. So you might, you might say that according to Bildad, such and such and such and such, and that's about as far as you'd want to go with it, right? <laughs> that's it. Um, yeah, go ahead. In your 
topic our SDA Bible study is a form of proof testing, testing, um, texting that may take things out of context. Let me, yeah, I haven't got to that yet, have I? Well, I was wondering if you're going to address your question. I am. I'm going to do it right now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. So I, I have, in a sideways way, addressed it when we looked at Zechariah 14, right? I mean, we looked at that in our evangelistic series, we pull out this verse out of Zechariah 14.4, and we use it to talk about the millennium, but the truth is that the context of the passage does not, um, it's not very Adventisty at all. <laughs> And, um, and that just doesn't work out well. Now I want to testify that this is the exception and not the rule. The fact of the matter is that God's purpose, we started out with this in the very first session, is that we would compare Scripture with Scripture. Maybe if we could say you can do it this way, if this is a passage, and this is a passage, and this is a passage, I don't want to compare this verse with this verse with this verse. I'm going to do much better if I compare this passage with this passage with this passage. What you don't know by experience, and you would do well to learn it by experience, is how thoroughly our pioneers did that. In fact, I'm so glad that the new Ellen White CD-ROM has the words of the pioneers on there. You will not find modern publications that are as biblically literate and thoroughly researched and carefully written as those by J.N. Andrews and Haskell and our pioneers. They could compare scripture with scripture, but they knew what was in the context. They referred to the context. They referred to the storyline. Have any of you read what William Miller wrote about his own experience? It's incredible. He said that after the great disappointment, when he looked back on his life, before he had ever begun preaching, he had studied for many years and had tested his own ideas and brought up every objection against them that he could think of until he could put it to rest. And when he had put them all to rest, he began preaching. After the great disappointment, he looked back at the objections that his opposers brought up. He said not once had anyone ever brought up an objection against his doctrine that he had not thought of before he began preaching. More than that, he said that many objections against his doctrine that he had thought of, no one had ever brought up against him. That's our pioneers. And yeah, if we'll go after the material, you'll find that they were comparing scripture with scripture, but they had an eye to context they were interested in it. They were more careful about that than we are today. Um, I want to, I have more to say on this topic before I take any more questions. Let me just address this more. Because the alternative concept that's being taught today, probably you've heard these words uh, thrown around, exegesis and eisegesis. What's the third letter in isa? before? Like that? Yeah, that's, that even looks like Greek. <laughs> that's great. All right. All right. Um, so this exegesis and eisegesis are words you don't need to know, but you're going to hear them, so if you learn them, it will help you. Like, there's a lot of words like that. Like, you know, the, this objective and subjective Many people go through like 20 years of their life hearing those words and never once understanding them. <laughs> Is there anyone here like that that's kind of like, okay. And so, so let me help you with these two at least so you can hear. Isa, in Greek, ice is a preposition that means into. That's the idea, it's like into, ice, ding. <laughs> and the, the idea of eisegesis 
is that you read a thought into the scripture. So the passage says, a little child shall lead them. And you read into it that little children's sayings are so cute that they give us guidance in our church service. Have you ever heard anyone do that kind of vice at Jesus? When the text says that they're going to be leading around animals in heaven, right? And it's just, it's not, it's not the same thing. Eisegesis is when you read into the text. Exegesis is, by contrast, obviously a better thing. It's where you look to see really what's in the text. And you try to dig out what's in the text and see what's there. But exegesis can be taken to a nonsensical extreme. And this is the nonsensical extreme. You don't use the other passages of Scripture that would help you understand it because, that, because they're not in its context. But don't you know, it's not like that, that the book was written by a bunch of men on their own accord. The book was written as the Holy Spirit moved on men to write. And don't you think that it fits together as a result of its authorship? So if you take exegesis to the extreme that you do not use the other related passages to modify, interpret, to teach, to explain, you cut yourself off from the promise of Isaiah 28 where it said, whom shall he teach knowledge? Whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them who are weaned from human dependence, my Victorianizing of the passage, and then those that take here a little and there a little, those who are comparing scripture with scripture. Let me just think if I said this well enough or if I need to start over. I've seen it where people using what I'd call the nonsensical exegesis. They take the passage and now they've they've read it, they understood basically what it says, but now they want to study deeply. If they were using Isaiah 28, they'd study deeply by finding the other passages. And boy, would their, would their study become deep so quickly they would understand like they never understood before. But if we're going to get deep and only stay in the passage, I can't see anything more in the passage. Now I have this deadly, might be an exaggeration, foolhardy is a better adjective, my foolhardy method of lexicographical evaluation. I'll start looking up the words in my Strong's Concordance. I'm trying to get stuff out of the text. The word is in the text, so I want to see what does Strong say about it. I'm going to make up a foolish example to illustrate the fooleries that happens here all the time. So I look up the word for, oh, here's a real one. I'm in Revelation 16, and I look up this word sorceries. And I find out that the Greek word is, yeah, and it sounds like Walgreens, right? And now I have the deep meaning of the passage. But this is not accurate. Let me give you one that maybe is, you might hear more often than that, because that one you would hear only occasionally, but this one you'll hear like in every eighth sermon by a theology major. The Greek word is dunamis, from which we get dynamite. And so when you read it, you read dynamite power. But you just start reading how the word dunamis is used all through scripture. And you'll see that it's used for even very small powers. It's just the normal Greek word for power or authority. And when you start reading explosiveness into every use of dunamis, <laughs> you're just, you thought it was exegesis, but it really became eisegesis. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? 
you were trying to get out of the text what you really should have got by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And because you denied the source that God made available, you had to put a little bit of yourself into it. And um, lexicons are very poor ways to correct translations. Do you know that even after you take your advanced Greek, you don't know the language? Do you know that? That the people who translated the Bible, they could read it, you know? And, they, and when they read it, it was easy. And they weren't even thinking about what's the meaning of the word, just like you don't think about that when you're reading it in English. They weren't thinking about that when they were doing it. But when your lexicon is a dictionary, and when you come, if you think a lexicon is a dictionary, it will save you all kinds of problems. Because if you look up here, let me just find, I'll just make up an example and you'll see it. Um, the word place. Do you see 1B, the fourth word place? I could look up the word place in a dictionary and I would find it could mean a location. It could be a verb that means to put. Right? Now, I find in the text they translated it as location. But now I try the other, the verb put. And I find a deep meaning. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? A deep meaning. But the truth is that when you read find a private place, none of you read it as find a private put. <laughs> right? Because you knew the language, it was easy to know which meaning fit. The people who translated the Bible, it wasn't very hard for them typically to know which meaning fit. And when you use the dictionary without knowing the language, you can just cloud what God made clear. Then are you just stuck if the translator does a poor job? There is something that you can do, helpful. You can read the parallel passages that use the same Greek or Hebrew word. You can learn a lot about the truth that way. But now you're using Isaiah 28. It might not be the kind of exegesis that some would teach, but it's the kind that Jesus taught. And um, that's what I meant by exegetical nonsense. I finally got to it. Okay, so thank you for bringing up the question. Let me take this, and then I'll take the man in the back. Go ahead. I have a question about uh, Revelation 4, the 24 elders. I don't know if you're able to. Um, are they, the, the last three pages of Desire of Ages speaks about them being the representatives of the unfallen hills, whereas most Adventists teach that it's those that were resurrected with Christ when he, or resurrected when Christ died on the cross, the many that were come out of the graves. That's the teaching. But I've seen other teachings that are coming out. Stephen Bohr, you're thinking of. Yeah, one of them. Mm -hmm. But I've seen others now also. So that's so I'm considering his teaching, and it's when it lines up, it seems to line up like everything we're discussing. What are your feel? Because no, let me answer your question briefly, because I think I can't give a long answer to it. My brief answer would be that what you think about the 24 elders is interesting. I'd like to see Bohr's data. I understand the church's position because of what they say, of course, in that passage right there about we've been redeemed. When I look at it all, I think whichever side of that fence I come down on, if you land on the other side of it, we can still do evangelism together very well. Because my, my church plant, the people that are there might not even know that there are 24 elders in Revelation 4. And that, let's call these the curious topics of Bible study and not give them the same weight as the central topics of Bible study. I have heard what Bohr teaches. I mean, I've heard it. I never heard him teaching on it. I heard others that heard him, and I haven't taken the time yet. It speaks about God being in the heaven, and it talks about the elder, 24 elders, the four creatures, and everything. But it talks about one sitting on the throne holding the scroll, which is the Father. But then later on, who's worthy to open scroll, of course, it talks about the Lamb, which is Christ. Now, at that point, the 24 elders are already there. Let, let me just so pause you on this and say that I have heard people who have heard it telling me what you're telling me now. 
but I haven't taken the time to study it for myself, and so I won't vouch an opinion. Let me take that question behind you. Go ahead. They would die. Um, so what, what I think what you're asking is it okay to carry weapons and to, and, and to fight in a warfare? I have an article on this at BibleDoc.org called The Draft. And you're one of the few people in here who a draft could possibly come into existence when you're at the age to be a victim of it. I'd recommend reading that article. The, the draft is addressing what you do when the different authorities in your life that are legitimate contradict each other. Is the government a legitimate authority in our life? Yes. Are our parents a legitimate authority in our life? Yes. So if the government says register and your mom says don't, that's the kind of question that this is addressing. And uh, yeah, I'd be curious for feedback from any of you on that kind of topic. You know, I'm supposed to be done now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a closing prayer that anyone who wants to leave can leave, and then I'll just talk to those who don't leave about whatever they want to talk about, all right? So let's bow our heads for a prayer, and we'll be done. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, I ask that you would take anything that I've said here that's true and deepen its influence. And whatever I've said that is faulty or misrepresents the truth, that you'd weaken the influence of that very thing you would allow your truth to be victorious in this planet. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.